Good morning, Crossing family. I hope you're doing well today. I know that we had all hoped that we wouldn't be back at this point doing this online again, but as we have often quoted from the book of Proverbs throughout this whole season, man plans his ways, but it is the Lord who orders his steps. So it was with much deliberation and discussion this past week that we did decide to forego our in-person gathering today with a number of positive COVID cases that arose across our church family over the past couple of weeks. We recognize that the potential risk of spreading the, the virus when we gather is heightened right now. And so we felt like it was wise this week to take this week off and seek to limit the spread across our community. I know there's some who may deem that an unnecessary step, but uh, part of the factor that went into that was the potential direct exposure that the pastoral team had this past week. And so rather than just hoping for the best, we felt like it was wise and prudent to take this week off and move things to an online platform just for this week. It is our desire to get back uh, to our normal regular Sunday gatherings next week, and so I'd invite you to plan for that. We do plan to get back into our study through the book of Exodus next week in Exodus chapter 19 as we begin to look at the giving of the Mosaic Law. And so I would encourage you to read in Exodus 19 and 20 as we begin to, to wrestle with some, some tough questions about what is the nature and purpose of the law and how in, in, in what sense might this apply to us today. And so that's what you can expect moving forward. So I'd encourage you to begin even reading that now. And I'd also want to just encourage you to make the Sunday gathering a priority moving forward. Don't use this kind of crazy season as, as a kind of a convenient excuse just to kind of stay home and say that you'll catch it online or listen to the podcast later. But the, the, this is not a, a, a good substitute for, for the gathering of the church. And so I would encourage you to make it a priority to be with the people of God on Sunday. We need each other during this time. We need to fight for, for corporate worship, to fight to, to hear from God's word as there's so many voices speaking to us. And we need to press in to the formative uh, rhythms of the people of God in this season. So I'd encourage you to join us and plan to be consistent and regular in coming to either our 9 a.m. or 1030 gatherings in the coming weeks. Uh, amidst all of the changes that we had to make uh, this, this past couple of weeks, uh, Daniel was actually supposed to uh, preach uh, today, but he did come down sick on Friday. And so I'd ask you just to, to pray for Daniel and his family. And uh, so as we discussed uh, what to do this week, we, we actually decided to kind of dip back into the archives and we are going to be uh, giving a rerun sermon here this morning. And so uh, much like uh, your favorite comedy, whatever that may be, for me, that's The Office. Uh, and, and we all know with our favorite comedy, there's certain episodes that we, we can just watch over and over again and that are, are always humorous or always funny. And uh, this sermon is kind of like that. It's, it's a sermon that is still very uh, relevant to us today. Uh, this is actually a sermon that Aaron preached about four years ago, right after uh, Donald Trump was actually elected as president. And so this was, this was a sermon on unity. And so the things that Aaron addressed in the sermon are, are still things that are relevant today. Even though we have a, a different man sitting in the White House, we recognize that the same divisions and the same struggles and turmoil that existed in our nation and even in our own communities uh, back then are still present and well alive today. And so this is a timely word for us once again. And so I'd encourage you to, uh, to listen to this sermon uh, with your heart open to be able to hear and receive from God this morning as Aaron opens uh, from Psalm 133. All right, Psalm 133, Psalm 133. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around the chairs around you with the black Bible there. And in that Bible, we're going to be on page 519, 519. We'll be covering all three verses of Psalm 133 today. So um, if you would, please stand as I read God's Word. Psalm 133, a song of ascents, a song of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing and life forevermore. The reading of God's word. You guys may be seated. So I'm entitled the message, United As We Stand. As you guys know, one of the biggest tools of the enemy is disunity. 
is disunity. He looks to cause havoc and chaos in marriages, families, businesses, country, and even the church through the vehicle of disunity. Disunity. As we know, disunity is one of the most destructive forces the world has ever seen or does experience since the fall, since Genesis chapter 3. Chaos, disorder came into the world when our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey God and go after their own fleshly lusts. And, and, and we see this right now in our country, don't we? We're getting a full portion of disunity in our country right now because of the elections that we just had and the results. Some people did not approve of that. But disunity is nothing new. Any of us that have been living at all in here for any amount of time understand that disunity is a part of life. Again, because we live in a Genesis 3 world. And, and we're all going to experience disunity until the day we die. The question is this morning for us, for you and for me is, where are you experiencing disunity in your life this morning, today, this past week? Where have you experienced chaos with your spouse, with your kids, with your, your co-workers, uh, on Facebook or social media? Where have you experienced disunity? And then the next question, the follow-up is, then, how'd you respond to that disunity? How'd you respond to that disunity? Did you respond with love or were you unloving? Did you respond with humility or pride? Did you respond with impatience or patience? You see, this is what Psalm 133 addresses this morning. The good news that though there is disunity in the world, the good news is there is unity. And this unity is just as powerful. Disunity is powerful to destroy, but unity is just as powerful to build up and to bless. And that's what we're going to see this morning. What David, the author of Psalm 133, zeroes in on for us today is that unity is where the blessing of God is and where life is. That's where unity dwells. Therefore, if you're looking for peace, if you're looking for life, if you're looking for blessing in your life, we are called to be unifiers and not dividers. And so let's look at Psalm 133 together. And how we're going to do this is we're going to look at Psalm 133. And Psalm 133 kind of gives us some general overarching statements on unity. And then we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4 and kind of dial down on some practical aspects of unity and what it means for us to be unified and how to live out unity. So Psalm 133. It's a song written by King David, as we just saw. And we don't really know how any idea when it was written. Most people take an educated guess. Most commentators take an educated guess that it was written by t- when he was being inaugurated as the second king of Israel. Saul was the first king, and then David came in on his coattails. And the kingdom was anything but unified when Saul uh, ended his reign and David took over. They were, they were not. They were dis- there was disunity. And so it's very applicable for us today, very practical for us today, because we're seeing a transition in power as well. And our country is not unified, is it? There is disunity. So this is where Psalm 133 uh, speaks to us this morning. What we see in verse 1 is that first we see that unity is good. Unity is good. The first verse of the, this song, David writes an emphatic, a demonstrative truism. He makes a statement. This is not a suggestion. This is not a wish, but a statement of fact. And we should be singing at the top of their lungs. It is this, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Unity is valuable. Unity brings joy. This is the statement. This is the thought that David wants to get across. Unity is good. So let me ask you a question this morning. What do you behold... What do you go after? What do you see as valuable, as good? That, that, that brings you joy. It could be family. It could be a job. It could be a degree. It could be a friendship. All these things are great. But as David surveys his kingdom, he points out that the one thing that this kingdom needs is unity, is unity. This is what my brothers and sisters living in, living in this kingdom need, is unity. So what is unity? Unity is a state of whole. It's oneness. It's um, a, a single unit with multiple parts working together as one to accomplish a task or a purpose. One of the best sayings regarding unity that I could think of comes from the three musketeers, right? 
the three musketeers. You guys know this saying, right? When they put up their swords, they say it. Say it with me. All for one and one for all. All for one and one for all. And then they go on. There's another tagline that says this. All for one and one for all. United we stand and what? Divided we fall. So even the three musketeers saw the importance of unity just like David. And our lives will be good. Our lives will be pleasant. It'll be joyful when there's unity in our lives. Uh, Things will get done. Things will be productive. But when there's disunity, things are not good. Things are not pleasant. Things aren't getting done because disunity doesn't uh, produce productivity. Disunity produces division. It produces chaos, pain, hurt, frustration. Preparing for my sermon this week, I had disunity on my computer. Uh, Disunity in my Mac computer, all right? In particular, uh, it was between my ad blockers and the internet. As I was, you know, studying on Friday and writing, trying to write my sermon, I'm trying to pull up my Bible program, and somehow every time I'd pull up my Bible program, it took me to like Cabela's, you know, or it took me to the gun store, which normally on a good day, I'm not so, not so mad about, right? It's like, okay, that's okay, that's awesome. But when I'm studying and, and writing a sermon, I want, I want complete unity between the parts in my Mac working together. And needless to say, I was not a happy camper or very productive on Friday. All the parts were not working as one. There wasn't unity within my computer. There was disunity, and that caused frustration for me most of the day. Now, I'm thankful for my Mac computer, all right? Because I was a PC guy before my Mac computer, all right? And for the last seven years, this is the first time I've had a problem like this on my Mac. And so, again, I'm thankful for my Mac computer. Now I know why you Microsoft and PC users always seem to be so unhappy all the time, right? I love what James Boyce says about unity. He says this, Unity is certainly more noticeable by its absence than by its presence. That's good, right? And you think about your life. It's like we don't think much of unity. Like if I were to ask you, what do you hold valuable in your life? You probably wouldn't have said, well, unity. You know that my wife and I are on the same page. The kids are, you know, they love being a part of the Santini family. But when disunity comes, it's like, oh, now we understand how important unity is. Now we understand how important unity is. And that's what David is praying. He said, unity is good. I want this to flow through our kingdom. Now notice this thing is the song of ascent. And I just want to remind you what that means, a song of ascent. Uh, what that means is that the pilgrims that were scattered all over the world, every year they had to come back to Jerusalem for some festivals. So they would all come back during a certain time. And the songs of ascent, or the songs of um, the ascent means, means to climb or walk. So on their way back to Jerusalem, all these different peoples from every tribe, every tongue, every economic status, men, women, children, would all kind of be coming in this one big you know, crowd, and they would be singing this song. They would be singing in unison Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And so thousands upon thousands of people, as they're making their way back to Jerusalem, are singing this song. Now there's 15 of these songs in the Psalms, Psalm 120 through 134. So they would be just going through each of these songs, singing them to one another as they're going to Jerusalem. Now we need to really stop and think about how powerful this would be to be a part of that group. I mean, think about that. Thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands, maybe hundred thousands of people walking in unison to Jerusalem, singing with one voice this song. It would be an amazing thing. Now, have we ever experienced anything like this here? Sure. I think most of us in here have probably been at a sporting event, right? And, and we're all in the crowd or on the field, and we get to sing, sing the national anthem. I don't know about you, but I... Love that. I love that. And, and, and by God's church, when I was playing baseball, we got to play every single day. And I got to stand on the field, and we had thousands of people singing the national anthem. And I was watching the World Series, Game 7, this past, this past uh, year, which was the best Game 7 in the history of baseball. If you missed it, too bad for you, all right? Um, but it was awesome. But the one thing I loved about it is when they sang the national anthem, usually they just have one singer, but they didn't have one singer, did they? They just had the orchestra, right? The Cleveland Orchestra, some pieces from the orchestra, and they played the instrumental, and you had 50,000 people in that stadium singing as one. Singing as one. And what were they, what were they united around? They weren't united around the Cubs or the Indians at that point. They were united around what? Being Americans. 
being Americans. And there's nothing more powerful. Well, there is other things more powerful. But when you're standing on that field and it comes to that crescendo in the end and the crowd just erupts in unison about being proud to be an Americans. Now you take that 50,000 and you multiply it again by people from every tribe, every tongue coming from all over the world to Jerusalem singing Psalm 133 in unison. Very, very, very powerful. Now, we don't, we don't have these festivals. Thank goodness we don't have to fly to Jerusalem every year, right? Um, because of Christ, he was the, the, the last and the only sacrifice that we need. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again. There's no longer a centralized temple or centralized place of worship. The temple now is us, our bodies. The Holy Spirit dwells us. His presence is in us. So we don't need to go to Jerusalem. We get to come here. This is why Sunday morning corporate worship is so vital is so vital because it lets us experience the goodness and the joy of the unity that we all have in Christ. That's why when we sing these songs to one another, when we pray, when we preach the word, when we, when we take communion, we do all these things to inform us that why we do all these things is to inform us by one unifying truth. And that one unifying truth that brings us together here is that we are here to worship the one true king, the only king. And in him, in him alone, is salvation, joy, and peace forever. It is Jesus and his gospel. That's what brings us here every Sunday. That's what gets us together in our small groups every week, is we want to be around one another. The unifying theme is that of Christ. You see, with all the disunity that's out in this world, that we all experience Every single day, every single day, every one of us in here experiences some form of disunity. Again, whether it's at work, whether it's in our home, wherever it might be, we experience this disunity. And the church, for the most part, is the one place where we get to rest. When you walk through these doors, you know there's not going to be, you know, two people, you know, people on one side of the room and people on the other side holding signs and picketing right? Or protesting something. We know that when we walk through these doors, we have one thing in common, and that is Christ. And that's just like, oh, thank you. Thank you. I got I get to come to a place and I don't have to worry about arguing with somebody, right? You see, every Sunday we bring in our busyness. We bring in our stress from out there to in here. And the Holy Spirit meets us right where we need to be met. He either meets us through a song. He meets us through a prayer. He meets us through one of us coming up and say, hey, man, how are you doing? How can I be praying for you? He meets us through his word, through his gospel. His spirit meets us where we are at, and it refreshes our hearts. So when we walk out that door, don't underestimate the importance of the Sunday gathering. It's vital for the Christian. Because again, it's here we hear about God's love, his grace, his justice, his sovereign plan over the world. And we leave renewed, encouraged, and ready to engage the world again. I can remember many of you last week, right, before the election. And people were like, Aaron, pray for me, man, because I'm freaking out, right? What, what are you preaching on today? I preached on Romans chapter 13, the sovereignty of God. And afterwards, many of you came and said, oh, yeah, we're going to be all right. Because God's in control. You guys remember that feeling? Those two distinct emotions that you had when you came in and then when you left? That's why we need to come together on Sunday morning. That's why it's sold out. Don't underestimate the importance of the gatherings. You and I need the unity of the gospel and community every week because unity is good. Point two. Unity comes from above. And it comes in abundance. Unity comes from above and it comes in abundance. Verses 2 and 3. Uh, it gives us two examples of what would be a vivid to these pilgrims. These examples would be vivid to these Jewish pilgrims going back to or reading this Old Testament. Where unity comes from and the abundance blessing of unity. Verse 2 says this. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, who was the high priest. He had a great beard. Running down on the collar of his robes. Now notice it says on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Like I said, he must have had a sweet beard, right? I know a lot of you guys are proud of your beards. They don't hold nothing to, to Aaron. 
Aaron's beard, right? And then he also had the best oil. I guess you need oil for your beards, apparently, right? He had the best oil each and every year. It came from the Lord above that anointed him. Verse 3 says, it was like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion. So what we see in these two examples is that the unity comes from above. It comes from above. And it flows down from the top to the bottom. The oil represented the Lord's concentration, I'm not concentration, consecration of Aaron. And, and it was a symbol when the oil was on the head, was put on the head of the oil. It was a symbol as if God was putting that oil on Aaron's head. And then it would go down to his beard, all the way down to the hem of his robes. It says running down, running down. And then we see this other example of the dew that falls from above. The moisture that falls from above to the highest mountain to the lower mountains. And what it means and what this picture is that unity is a gift that comes from God. It comes from above and flows down on all of us. He is the giver of unity because in his very being, in his very being, there is perfect unity. And what I mean by that, we, we know the Lord as, in this theological term, as the Trinity. He is the one God that reveals himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, separate yet equal, but yet one God. There's a mystery behind it, but in that Trinity, there is perfect unity. And we can look at a number of examples, but I want us to focus on salvation, on redemption. That we see this one God, with these, the God the Father, the God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit, all have different roles to accomplish a purpose. And the purpose that they want to accomplish is salvation. Real quickly, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we see this. We see God's unity in himself, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all working together, all carrying out their roles for the redemption of their, of his people, of his people. Verse one. Verse one, three through five, we see that the God the Father elects. He elects. It says this, starting in verse three. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, even as he, the Lord, God the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, the Lord, God the Father, predestined us for adoptions as sons through... Now, so the Lord, God the Father, he ordains, he elects, and then we see the second member of the Trinity... Christ, his role. His role is to save us. We are saved, end of verse 5, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him, in Jesus, God the Son, we have redemption through his blood. What Christ did on the cross, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have the Father chooses, he elects, he elects, then God the Son comes, he lives a perfect life in our place, he dies on the cross, he sheds his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. Perfect unity in the plan of salvation. Then we go all the way down to verse 13, and then we see the role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, in Jesus. You believed in Jesus. And then we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise and glory. The Holy Spirit's role is he comes in and he seals our hearts until Christ comes back. So we see perfect unity coming from above in salvation. God the Father elects. God the Son redeems with his life. God the Holy Spirit seals us. Perfect unity in their relationship. And then this unity is passed down onto his people. It's passed down onto his people. Remember, we went through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. It says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, Right? And so he passes it on. Then we see in Acts chapter 2, it says that because we have the Spirit, because we now have this unified vision, this mission that comes from God the Father and God the Son, we have this mission that is propelled, illuminated, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are, Acts chapter 2 says, devoted to one another. We are devoted to one another. There is unity. Again, this unity flows and comes from above through God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, to us, and then we live it out. Secondly, we see that this unity is also, there's an abundance and a breath, a breath uh, uh, of this unity. 
The priest would step out and the people would see and smell the oil that covered Aaron. And he would be like drenched in this stuff. Not just a little dab here and a little dab there. Remember, it came from his head, down his beard, to his robe. I mean, think about Ghostbusters, like when Bill Murray and those guys got slimed by the first ghost, right? Remember that? When he came out and he's like, you know, I've been slimed. He's like dripping with slime. That was the, that's what they would see. They would see the high priest just dripping with this oil. Now, the thing about this is this is they knew that the Lord was blessing the high priest. The high priest was a representative of the people. So then the high priest would then bless all the people there. We see the abundance and the breadth of this unity, of this gift of unity. The same way with this, this, this illustration of the, the moisture, the dew, going onto the highest peak and flowing down to the smaller peaks. What that means is that all this water that would bring life to all the animals, vegetations and crops, from the highest peak to the lowest lows. This is a symbol of abundance and the breath of God's unity and his love. And we see that abundance and breath of the gift of unity from above in redemption in this room. In this room. The Lord's redemption reaches all over the world. It is for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And then he brings these people together on a Sunday morning or in a life group. And with one unified voice, they sing, we sing, Jesus is Lord. Again, this is a perfect picture of God's abundant grace of unity for you and for me. And the diversity and the breadth that it covers. I mean, think about here, and as I was thinking about the cross when we first started until now, we have people, we have probably every state has been covered. People coming to worship here on a Sunday morning or in life group. Every state. We've, we've had almost, we've had um, a person from every continent except maybe Antarctica, right? Antarctica. Anyone in here from Antarctica that I missed? No, right? No polar bears walking here. We, 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 but we've had everyone from Africa, Europe, uh, Australia, the Oceanic, North America, South America. Where God's grace, his unity of the redeeming value found in Christ and Christ alone reaches to these worlds. And the people come here on a Sunday morning. And with one voice, we all sing to Christ and his amazing grace. And we can all do that. It doesn't matter the backgrounds we come from because of the unity that we have in Jesus. This is what David is getting across. God's unity is abundant and its breath covers the whole world. Thirdly, unity brings life. Unity brings life. Verse 3. What would a, a gift of unity produce in our lives? It, it will produce life. Verse 3 says, for, the, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The key two words in there are for there. For there. Those are the key words for the Lord's blessing. Because here's the point he's making. It's when we as a community are united around Christ, that is, that is the place that the Lord will give blessing. He commands blessing and he commands life. When his people are unified around Christ. So if we want to be a community where the blessing of the Lord is, we need to be unified. We need to be unified. I was, I was listening to a, uh, a Navy SEAL give a commencement speech to the University of Texas. Phenomenal. And his whole premise was, you know, um, if you want to change the world, do these 10 things. Do these 10 things if you want to change the world. And his number two principle um, was very telling. It was about unity. And he said this. He says, when you're training in the SEALs, um, each of you got, each of the uh, boats get, you know, six guys and a com- kind of like a commander or a leader. So you have all these boats, depending on how many guys you have, but each boat gets six guys plus one, okay? And he says they'd have these training days, especially in the wintertime, where they have to like, a, like paddle up the coast. And to complete this task, sometimes it would take them, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours. But in the wintertime in particular, the surf was very, very rough. The surf was very, very rough. So you had these seven guys in a boat, three on each side, one captain kind of navigating. And he said, he said this, he said, the waves would sometimes get to be six to eight foot swells. So very, very difficult. And he says, if everyone wasn't rowing at the exact time with the exact effort, the, the boat would get turned sideways and it would be, they would end up on the shore. The, the waves would just crush the boat and flip it over. He said, every single man 
had to listen to the commander, and their strokes had to be perfect. Not only by the time they hit the water, but they had to be imperfect about the intensity in which they hit the water. They had to be synchronized. They had to be unified, or else that boat would just flip over, and they would fail the mission. And he said this, if you want to change the world, find someone to help you paddle in unison. It's like, man, that's what this point is talking about. If you want life, if we want life here at the crossing, then we need to paddle in unison. And Christ is the navigator. He is the captain of our boat. And we are listening to his commands. And I think about this verse with regards to the crossing in our church. Um, we're a church that's been around for about six years. So we're a very, very young church. You know, we're in our toddler stages, so to speak. And we started out, we just had, you know, seven of us. And, and through the years, the Lord has commanded his blessing on this body. And the reason why the Lord has commanded his blessing on this body is because, for the most part, we have been united around one thing and one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been united around this theme of making disciples for Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the joy of his people. That has been our mission statement since day one. And we've been following it. And how have we been living that out? We've been living it out through loving God, living in gospel community, and leaving a legacy with those where we live, work, and play. That's been the mission. That's been the vision that we have been following. And over the past six years, the Lord has commanded his blessing on you and me. By this, this little church has planted a church. We've also sent other leaders to help another church plant. We plant a church in Olomouc, Czech Republic, where we've been instrumental in doing that. We've sent people out that have been transformed spiritually, and then they're going out and blessing others in their churches and their communities. Literally, this church, because of the mission that we have rallied around, the mission of Christ to love God and make disciples, is reaching the world is reaching the world. And we're going to come here about that next week when Zach says, hey, this is what's taking place in the Czech Republic. About a month ago, we had Daniel come up here, and he talked about all the moats. And we saw that one picture of them that they started 10 years ago with about 20 people, and then they showed us what has taken place in the last 10 years, and they have hundreds of people. And they have six or seven churches around. Why is that taking place? Because the Lord has commanded his blessing on this body, because we've been unified around Christ and his gospel. It's a beautiful thing. Unity brings life. The longer I live and mature as a Christian, this principle of unity becomes more and more important to me and clear how important it is. The longer that you walk with Christ, the older you get, how many of you that say you've been walking the Lord over 10 years that you would say this, this principle is true? Raise your hand. You see the importance of unity. Yes, it is huge. Why? Because the more and more I'm conformed to the image of Christ, the more and more I'm united and being encouraged by you guys and studying his word, and the Holy Spirit is, is teaching me the things of Christ and his word, the more and more I behold what Christ beholds, the more and more I value what Christ values, the more and more I value unity because he values unity. John 17, 20 says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. That's Christ's plan in John 17, his high priestly plan. His, his prayer for us is this, that we would be one, that we would be unified around the gospel. Then Jesus also went on to say that the kingdom divided cannot stand, and a house divided cannot stand. Why? Because a house divided gives us chaos. But then the converse is true. A kingdom united can stand, and a house united will stand. And we see a real stark contrast between unity and disunity. Disunity brings confusion, frustration, pride, stress, and literally will take years off your life. Unity brings peace and joy and direction and blessing and adds years to our lives. Unity is life-giving. I was asked this week um, if, if I miss playing, um, you know, sports and stuff, and the last time I was, I was in a locker room as a player was 20 years ago. And then I was fortunate enough to do some uh, coaching with UNC a number of years ago, but be in that locker room. But the, that, the one thing that I miss playing that most ball players or people that are involved in sports miss is the camaraderie of the team. When that door shut, there was 25 of us or 30 of us that we were all unified on one mission, one purpose, and one goal, and that was to win a championship. And it didn't matter what was going on outside that everyone in this locker room believed and we had each other's back. 
And once you get done playing, that's very rare to replicate. But it says that unity brings life. There's something bigger than winning a championship. And that's building the kingdom of God. So I get excited every morning when I get up and get to, to meet with some of you guys through journey groups, through discipleship groups. I get excited to come here on Sunday morning and fellowship and sing along with you and pray with you. Why? Because there's a, there's a bond in this room that's greater than a bond in the locker room, that's greater than a bond in a battlefield. Because there's a bond that we want to build the kingdom of God, something that will last for eternity. That's something that you can live for. That, that's a mission that breathes life into me. That I wake up every morning and go, oh, I get to build the kingdom of God. You guys should have that same desire, that same passion, that same unity with one another to, to be on this mission together. Is that we get to build the kingdom of God together with one another. And there is nothing like that. Unity brings life. That is something worth living for. So that gives us the overarching theme of Psalm 133. Just kind of those things. Hey, unity is good. Unity is, uh, gives us uh, is abundance and it is a breath of unity that covers everything. And finding that unity is something that um, unity, what's the third point, is, uh, brings life, gives us life. Fourthly, well, how do we attain it? This is where we need to turn to Ephesians 4. So turn to your Bibles to Ephesians 4, chapter, one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. How do we obtain unity? How do we obtain it? The New Testament equivalent of Psalm 133 is Ephesians chapter 4. The very same theme that, that, that David wrote about in general. Paul is then now giving us some real practical principles on how to um, live out in the gospel of unity. It says this, Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, pri- I... Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. So when it says, I therefore, that therefore means, what, what is he writing about? He's writing everything about in the first three chapters of Ephesians. What is Paul unpacking the first three chapters of Ephesians? He's, un, he's unpacking the gospel. He's unpacking the gospel. The gospel is what unifies us. The gospel is what, when it says, men are worthy of the calling which you've been called, you've been called to the gospel. And that's what he wants to unpack. And the gospel is this, what God has graciously done in and through Christ Jesus for you and me. Through Christ's life, perfect life lived in our place, lived in your place. Through his death, died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. A death or a price that you could not have paid. He paid it for us. He was our substitute. And then a resurrection to show that he truly was the sovereign savior of the world. Now, if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, as verse 3 says. So if we want to walk and show people the gospel, we must walk in unity as a body. That's the point Paul is making. So what does a, a worthy life maintain the unity of the Spirit look like? What does it look like? When people look at us and go, man, what does unity look like? What, is it? what are the steps? There's four characteristics here in two couplets. The first couplet is this of humility and gentleness. The second couplet is this of patience and love. These are the practical things that we need to have in our lives to show people that we are unified. First, verse 2, with humility and gentleness. This is the first couplet. That we need to walk in humility and gentleness. What is humility? Humility is the honest assessing ourselves in light of God's holy Holiness in our sinfulness. Humility is the honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness in our sinfulness. That's the definition that C.J. Mahaney gives us. And that's a great definition of humility. In other words, he's saying this, that we need to have an accurate assessment of who we are before our sovereign God. And it's when you understand the gospel, and if you understand the gospel at all, you recognize that before Christ, everyone in here was hopeless. We were hopeless. We had no hope. And then the Lord extended his wonderful grace to you and me. And if we keep this as a constant reminder in our eyes, we will be able to walk in humility. And we'll be able to then produce unity amongst one another. 
Because when we keep this in our mind, when we understand that we are an enemy, separated from the love of Christ, we did not want the love of Christ, we could not think or even desire the love of Christ because we are an enemy. We wanted to do things the way we wanted to do them. We wanted to do everything that was right in our own eyes. And when we understand that, we were trying to earn favor, earn salvation by being a good person. This was our motivation. I can earn favor with God by just being a good person. Well, the problem with that is that outside of Christ and us trying to earn favor with the Lord, the, Isaiah says that our, our works are like filthy rags. The filthy rags there are referring usually to a woman's monthly menstrual cycle and the rags that they would use at that time. It'd be a tampon. That's, that's the language that our good works apart from Christ produces in the sight of the Lord. And yet that was all of us. And if we are reminded that if it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd still be in that state. But God's graciousness comes in and changes our hearts and we get to repent by faith and trust what Christ has done. If we keep that grid, that definition of humility in front of us, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, then we won't deal with others in pride. Then we won't deal with others in self-righteousness. We won't look down upon others, in particular those who, dis, who don't believe the same way that we do. But in humility, because we understand our state before Christ, but we also under our state, understand our state in Christ, that there's a constant reminder of the grace of God in our lives because we sin each and every day, and yet the grace of God covers that. So that keeps us humble. Remember, it's entirely how, how, how much uh, and how tightly God is holding on to me and you, not how tightly we are holding on to him. So if we remember this now, we won't deal with others in pride or arrogance, but we deal with them in humility. And at the heartbeat of humility is treating others more important than yourselves, as Philippians 2 says, as the example of Christ. There's a new, uh, I read of a story this this past week of this Christian man in China, and he had um, this field, and it took a lot of water, and then his neighbor had two fields below them, uh, below him. And so what the, the Christian man do every day, he's go up and he fill his field with water. Well, the non-believer, um, his neighbor that had the two fields below him, what he would do, he'd wait for that guy to go fill up his field, and then he would go in, he'd drill a hole or something in the, you know, the wall or whatnot, and that water would then go down and water his two fields. And finally, you know, the Christian guy that was above went to his Christian friend and said, man, what do I do? How do I handle this guy? And their advice is, well, handle him roughly in humility. Don't fight for your rights, but bless the guy. So this, this guy goes and says, okay. So what he does from, you know, for several months is he first fills up those two fields below his field. He blessed his neighbor. He didn't fight back. He humbled himself and filled up his neighbor's two fields, and then he filled up his, his own. And after months, the neighbor came by and said, like, dude, what, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And he got to share the gospel with him. This is why I'm doing it. Because Christ humbled himself and blessed me with salvation. Therefore, a fruit of that is I want to bless you. So I'm going to humble myself, not fight for my rights, and I'm going to bless you. Well, through that interaction, that neighbor, that non-believing neighbor became a Christian. That's what humility produces. Humility produces unity with those who live around you. When we walk in humility, we deal with people in gentleness. And we deal with people in humility people with gentleness and humility, it breeds unity. It breeds unity. The second couple of that is the patience and the bearing one another in love. Patience is love. For us to be patient with one another is us to love one another. Therefore, impatience is unloving. So think about this. How often are you impatient with people? How often are you impatient with your wife or with your kids or with coworkers or students or friends? When you get impatient with your spouses or kids or friends, what that says is we are being unloving. We are communicating something to them, and that is we do not love you. And, and they feel it. They feel it. It's loud and clear. When you and I are harsh or impatient with others, it is a clear demonstration that we both lost touch with the gospel. Because we forget how loving, how patient God had to be with us and still has to be with us. The 
This one, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very patient person. So this one really hit home with me this week. And uh, this is one area that I need to struggle. And I was reading this story about this pastor, and this man asked him to pray for patience. And I would strongly suggest, first to myself and to you, that we would exercise the fruit of the Spirit of patience in our lives because this man came and asked this pastor for prayer, for patience, because he's been impatient. And this is what the pastor prayed. They started praying, he says, and the pastor said, Lord, please bring suffering and tribulation into this man's life. And the guy was like, whoa, 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 you know. He said, I think you might have misheard me. You know, I said, I said, pray for patience, not trials and suffering. And he said, oh, young man. He says, have you ever read Romans chapter 5, verse 3, where it says this? Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces patience. So you, you asked me to pray for patience, so therefore I prayed for suffering and tribulation. Why? Because in the Christian worldview, that will produce patience or endurance. So I'm like, I don't need, I don't, don't, don't anyone here pray for me for patience, all right? I, 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 I'm on it. I'm on it. In 1968, I shared this, I shared this example with you guys before, but uh, a Stanford uh, University researcher presented each member of a group of preschool children with a single marshmallow, right? I don't know if you guys remember this, it was, it was several years ago. So this guy in 1968 wanted to do a study on, on patience and um, self-control with these little preschool kids. And so what he'd do is he'd, he'd say, okay, here's, here's a couple marshmallows, and he put them on the table, and then he said, don't eat the marshmallows, I'll be back in a little bit. And then if the, when I come back and the marshmallows aren't eaten, then I'll give you a prize. Okay. So he left the kids for like an hour, two hours, right? Now, some kids ate the marshmallow immediately, right? There was no patience. They were impatient. They didn't care about the future blessing. They wanted it here and now. Other kids did. And what was interesting is he followed up with these, with these kids about 40 years later. And the study revealed that those children who demonstrated sufficient patience to win the prize, experience greater success in life. They got better paying jobs. They didn't fall to uh, addictions. They lived a fruitful life than those that were impatient. So the researchers' conclusion that those was this, that those blessed with an ability to exercise patience enjoyed a greater life and greater chances in the future as a result of their patience. And that's what the, Paul is saying here. If we want to have the fruit of unity, we need to be patient with one another because that is loving to one another. When we are patient with one another, that tells people that we love them. And then when people hear that they love, that we love them, breeds and builds unity. So let me give you a little exercise for patience this week. We want you to be, we want to be thankful for the small blessings in your life. So the next time you get stuck on prospect or on horse tooth, uh, behind that train, right, in the, in the middle of the day, the next time you get stuck, and it's going to make you late for a meeting, how do we exercise pay? At that point, be thankful that you have a phone, that you can call whoever you're meeting there and just say, hey, I'm going to be late. That's a blessing. That's a blessing. And so you get to, that helps you exercise patience. And then you can think a little bit more on, after you hang up, you can, you have a little time to enjoy some great music, right? Or maybe the Lord put that train to stop you so you would just recognize him. Maybe it's just looking out the window, seeing the clouds, seeing the mountains, and saying, hey, man, 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 God, you're incredible. So maybe there are some ways that you can help you exercise patience, a little training, is that you're putting the pause button to, to, to see what the Lord might be doing. So again, when we are walking in patience, we are walking in love. When we are walking in love, we will walk in unity. Patience and love breed unity. And it says we do all these things, these, these two couplets, the things that we do. We're humi- we walk in humility and gentleness towards one another. We walk in patience and um, love towards one another. And when we do this, we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the key word there is maintain. The key word there is maintain because Paul speaks of not something that this, this idea of unity is not something that we find or create. It's something that we maintain. It's already been created in Christ Jesus and what he has done. And so we don't create the unity. We just maintain the unity in which Christ has blessed us with. And it's the gospel that creates the unity that we maintain. You see, when we lose unity between each other, this is important. When we lose unity between each other is because we've lost the gospel. 
It's because we've lost the gospel. We think that everything revolves around us and our needs, and we are the most important person in there. We've lost the gospel. The gospel says no, that we are to look to others' needs more important than our own. The gospel says that we have to love one another. We need to lay down our lives for one another. So when we lose unity between each other, it's because we've lost the gospel. But when we walk in the gospel, we build unity between one another, and that's where the Lord's blessing will come. Just real quick, we um, obviously just had an election, and there's a lot of angry people out there. There's a lot of disunity that's flying around out there. And who can blame them? I mean, if we really pause and think, most of the people that are protesting, or I should say rioting out in the streets, um, their whole worldview has just crashed. Their, their idols have fallen and have been busted up all over the place. And for us to be effective witnesses, we, we don't, they don't need the unity of the Republican Party platform. That would be good. That's not what they need. What they need is they need to be united back to Christ. They need to be united back to Christ. And so us, we are the ambassadors, and Christ has given us the message of reconciliation. He has given us the message of unity. And so when we engage with people that believe differently than us, and we engage with humility, we engage with gentleness, We engage with patience and not impatience. We engage with love with these individuals. Just watch the Lord maybe open up the door so that it may give you an opportunity to present the gospel, just like someone did for you and for me. God is about unity, and he's given us the mantle. He's given us the call to be ambassadors, to go out and raise the banner of unity for the whole world through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 133. Lord, David was in a very similar spot as we were, a divided kingdom. And he wanted to bring his kingdom together. And you are the same way. That was a little taste of something bigger. That you have created this world and because of sin, um, we have a divided kingdom. But you have overcome that disunity through your son, Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And first and foremost, those of us that have repented and trusted in you because of your grace, we first and foremost are thankful for your intervening and interrupting our path to bring us into the fold, to be unified by your son, Jesus. And Lord, may we have that heart for those where we live, work, and play that do not know you. They need to hear of the unifying message found in Christ and Christ alone. They need to hear that their first and foremost priority, the relationship that needs to be unified, is their vertical relationship, them with the Father. And when they do that, then all their vertical relationships will fall into place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.